All right, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now, this is the message I intended to preach last week. However, 2020 uh, struck. Uh, Heather found out early uh, two weeks ago that she had been exposed to COVID. A co-worker had it, and so she got put into quarantine. And uh, we were kind of waiting to see if she would have any symptoms. And the last thing I wanted was for her to become symptomatic late Saturday or early Sunday. And then we'd be scrambling. And so uh, I called Pastor Wayne, and he graciously agreed to come down. And that message last week was such a blessing and an encouragement. If you haven't listened to it, you can go onto the website and listen to that message, and you'll be encouraged uh, by it. There's going to be some overlap with this message. That was unintentional, but it's just the way that it works, and it's of God. So we need it. So that's why it's there. But uh, this is the message that I intended to preach last week. And we'll cover it this week instead. Next week, we'll pick back up in our study in 1 Timothy. What is Christmas about? (laughs) This is an important uh, question for us to contemplate at this time of year, every year. Last week, I came across an article uh, about Christmas. It was written back in 2015 by a man named Murray Bass. The title is, What is Christmas About? And so it caught my attention. Here's a paragraph from that article. He said this. There is the traditional Christmas, the holiday. It's the celebration of love demonstrated by selfless giving. The celebration of goodness, of right over wrong, of giving our hearts to others who need our love. There are memories of Christmas past. From childhood, my mother's long cotton stockings hanging from the mantle for the four bass children. And the Christmas morning when the stockings held a big apple or orange, a few pieces of hard candy and maybe a book. And the traditional feast to warm the bodies and hearts of the fortunate and unfortunate alike. That's what Christmas is about. And, and to his credit, he does go on to demonstrate how these find their place in the actions of Christ, but... But as I read the article, I could not help but be reminded that this is what the world thinks of Christmas. That it's this time of love and of triumph, of right over wrong, of good feasts for the fortunate and unfortunate alike. The movies, the songs, the traditions, they all loudly proclaim that Christmas is all about like warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another. It's about self-sacrifice, about finding love and joy. And, and certainly all these things are redeemable things. But is that what's, what Christmas is about? Well, as, Chris, as Christians, we ought to take the opportunity that Christmas provides to share the glorious message of Christmas. Not, not warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another. Not self-sacrifice. Not finding joy and love. Rather, the sacrifice of Christ. The way of joy and love through his redemption. In order to understand this, we need to look at the very first Christmas. So let's do that in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her nod until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're going to look at this first Christmas from Joseph's point of view in three different sections. The first section of this text is verses 18 and 19. We find Joseph's scandalous problem. Joseph's scandalous problem. And the scandalous problem was Mary's questionable pregnancy. It says Jesus, the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we discover that Mary and Joseph are betrothed together. And before they come together, she is found to be with child from or the source of the Holy Spirit. Now, the pledge to be married was legally binding. Only a divorce could break it. And infidelity while betrothed was considered adultery. Think about what the law says in Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. It says, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. By Jewish custom... A betrothal signified more than just an engagement. Today we have an engagement. A young man asks a young woman to marry him, and she says, yes, they're engaged. They're going to be married, but we don't consider them married by any stretch. And if the engagement falls through, it is sad and unfortunate, but we don't think too much of it. But a Hebrew marriage involved two stages, the betrothal and the marriage ceremony. Now, the marriage was almost always arranged by the parents, with, often without consulting the bride and groom. And a contract was made and was sealed by payment of a dowry or a bride price to the bride's father. It was paid by the groom or his family, and it served to compensate that father for the cost of the, of the wedding ceremony and to provide a kind of insurance, a down payment for the bride in the event the groom uh, became dissatisfied with her. The contract was considered binding as soon as, as it was made. The couple was considered legally married. So note in that text I read in Deuteronomy 22, they called the betrothed, but then at the end she was referred to as his wife. And so it was legally binding. Even though the marriage ceremony and consummation often occurred as much as a year later. And over the course of that year, during that betrothal time, it served as a time of probation, a time of testing of fidelity. And during that period, they often didn't even see each other. The bride and the groom had very little contact with one another. And during this period, Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. Now, we know the whole story. We know Mary, this was a supernatural pregnancy. She was pregnant by conception of the Holy Spirit. But Joseph didn't know that. Can you imagine as he, Mary tries to explain this to him? Joseph, you don't understand. I have been faithful. 
God did this. Uh, okay, Mary. Sure. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not young. I understand how this thing works. That's not how it works, Mary. How dumb do you think I am? Put yourself in his position. You're to be married. You love your fiancé. You're looking forward to life together. And then you find out she's pregnant. And it's not your baby. What would you do? What would you say? How would you feel? What would you think? You know, they lived in a small town. Wayne mentioned this last week. They lived in a small town. We, we know what it's like to live in a small town, right? Everyone knows everything about everyone. So, the whole town will soon be gossiping about you. As you walk down the street, you know they'll be looking at you. They'll be whispering about you behind your back. All because your fiancé was unfaithful. You didn't do anything, but now you're the talk of the town. Because of the degradation of today's culture, it doesn't seem to be a big deal, right? If a young lady is pregnant outside of marriage, we don't think much of it. But in the first century, this was not the case. First century Israel, it was a society built on the word of God. And as such, pregnancy outside of marriage was seen as the sin that it is. And so it was scandalous. It would, this would have destroyed reputations. It would have destroyed lives. But combined with this, we have Joseph's honorable character. Verse 19 tells us her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, there's two ways to read this verse. We could interpret this verse as stating that he was a just man, and so he was unwilling to put her to shame. But that would seem to be kind of contradictory, right? Justice requires justice. In the law, justice required stoning. In this society, he believed she'd been unfaithful. And if he married her, that would be seen as an admission of his own guilt. If he married her, everybody would say, see, they're trying to do the shotgun wedding. It's his kid. In fact, we discover later, when they move back to Nazareth, that's what everybody thought. They thought Jesus was Joseph's son. They called him the son of the carpenter. So... Justice, according to the Mosaic law, was brutal. More correctly, I think that we would read these two clauses contrasted with each other. Joseph was a just man, but yet he cared about Mary's reputation. He didn't want to put her to shame, to publicly humiliate her. Because he was a righteous man, Joseph could not in good conscience marry Mary. He believed that she'd been unfaithful. If he married her, it had been in mission of his guilt. But he was also unwilling to expose her to the disgrace of public divorce. One man said he saw the appearance of evil in her who was his espoused wife. But he did nothing rashly. He waited patiently to have the line of duty made clear. In all probability, he laid the matter before God in prayer. So Joseph, after praying about it, chose a quieter way, still permitted by the law. He would divorced her quietly. He could have called for her to be stoned, though that was rarely carried out in the first century. He could have made a statement through a public divorce, this isn't my child. She was unfaithful. 
so he could be clear about his own innocence. But instead, he sought a way to balance his love of justice and his love for Mary. John Calvin said, Joseph, therefore, moved by an ardent love of justice, condemned the crime of which he supposed his wife to have been guilty, while the gentleness of his disposition prevented him from going to the utmost rigor of the law. It was a moderate and calmer method to depart privately and remove to a distant place. So we're told at the beginning of verse 20 that he was thinking hard about this situation. He wasn't going to be rash. He wasn't going to come down on her. Instead, he was contemplating. It says, as he considered, as he thought deeply about it, while working through the proper answer to this scandalous problem, God sent an angel with a surprising answer, an answer he certainly did not expect. So let's look secondly at God's surprising answer. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's surprising answer was that Joseph should not divorce her. That's really surprising because God had said, frankly, that she should be stoned in Deuteronomy 22. This was surprising because such an action on Joseph's part would be tantamount to admitting guilt. How is he supposed to tell his parents how is he supposed to tell his friends, his community? No, you don't understand. We were faithful. We did it all right. This, this was God that did it. But yet, he was willing to do this. The community would have believed that Joseph and Mary had committed infidelity. Again, our culture causes us to cloud this issue. You know, sadly, we don't bat an eye when we learn of a couple engaging in premarital sex. But first century Israel understood God's expectations and they viewed it as it is a terrible sin. Indeed, we see through the Gospels that the community did indeed believe that Jesus was Joseph's son. Every time we see Jesus around Nazareth, the crowd refers to him as the carpenter's son. This message from God was certainly surprising. This command from God was asking a great deal from Joseph. The man who loved justice was to sacrifice his reputation for Mary's sake. He was to sacrifice his reputation because this birth was not a normal birth. Do we obey God when he asks us to do hard or surprising things? We read in Scripture commands from God of things we're supposed to do, ways we're supposed to give. Ways we're supposed to serve. People we're supposed to love. Ways we're supposed to forgive. And we think, no. No, I, I don't think that's what that means. That can't be what that verse is saying. That can't be what God is asking me to do. We tend to twist God's ideas and God's commands to fit our desires. But we need to be like Joseph. We need to be people who are willing to obey God's command, even when it is surprising, 
even when it is going to cost us. Birth. It was a supernatural birth. And it was a supernatural birth for three reasons. First, because it was a virgin birth. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph understood biology. He knew how conception worked. So this statement from the angel was as astounding to him hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, the virgin birth is important, is an important truth for us to believe. It's a vital, it's a foundational, a fundamental truth for us to believe for two reasons. First, it's fundamental because Scripture seems to indicate that we inherit our corrupt sin nature from our Father. But because Jesus did not have an earthly father, he did not inherit this sinful corruption. He was free from sin. Second, the virgin birth allowed Jesus to become our Savior. Only someone who was without sin and corruption could sacrifice himself for the sin of all man. If he had been born with sinful corruption, then he'd only be able to die for his own sin. Third, though, his deity required a special, extraordinary birth. An extraordinary person demands an extraordinary birth. One man said, certainly it is difficult to see how a divine being could become genuinely human by means of an ordinary birth. And so the angel informed Joseph that he was to go ahead with this marriage to Mary because this baby was the result of a virgin birth. But secondly, we see that it was a redemptive birth. As we mentioned, the virgin birth was for a specific purpose, the salvation of mankind. He said, you will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. J.C. Ryle said, Let us observe the two names given to our Lord in these verses. One is Jesus, the other, Emmanuel. One describes his office, the other, his nature. The first, Jesus. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Yahweh or God saves. We see this throughout the Bible. Psalm 130 verse 8 says, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. When the Son of God came to us clothed in flesh, He received from the Father a name that plainly told why He came. Jesus. Because He'll save His people from their sins. Jesus did not come for the purpose of being a good example. Although He is. He did not come for the purpose of social justice, although if we follow his word in obedience, social justice will take place. Jesus did not come as a good teacher, although he certainly was. Jesus came as a substitutionary atonement for the sin of mankind. In order to understand this, we need to start with man's problem. 
Right? God created all things perfectly. Genesis 1 and 2 inform us of this. He spoke all things into existence, and when he saw them, he said it was good. He created man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. He took the rib from Adam, and with it he created woman, and he said it was very good. But then Genesis 3. Man decided that rather than be content with being creation, they would rather be God himself. So Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempted Eve and Adam likewise to rebel, to become like God. And they did that. And as a result, sin entered into the world. Romans 5.12 tells us, For as by one man sin came into the world, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We see a picture of ourselves in Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Because of this sin, because of this rebellion, death entered the world. Physical death by which we are all separated from our bodies and spiritual death by which we are all separated from God. That's why Genesis 4 and 5 take place. Genesis 3, mankind sins. What's Genesis 4 and 5? They're genealogies. And they're dominated by a repeated phrase. And he died. And he died. And he died. And over and over we see death and corruption. Romans 6 tells us the wages, the price tag for sin is death. But all this ultimately results in eternal death, for God cannot look on sin. God cannot allow a relationship with sin. And so Revelation 20 tells us that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's our destiny except for Christmas. You see, Christmas is all about grace. This is why Jesus came, to save His people from their sins. That's why He said later in John 3, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He was born to die. Now, we all know that death awaits all of us, but that's not our purpose. We weren't born so that we could die, but that was Jesus' purpose. He was born for the specific reason to die. Second Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree that we being dead to sin might live through righteousness. By His wounds, we've been healed. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope. But Ephesians 2 tells us, God being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, this salvation is not applied to everyone. It is applied only to his people who come to him in faith. It's not of works we do. Perhaps you think, I go to church. I go even more than Christmas and Easter. I'm good. God will accept me. But it's not of the works that we do. It does only by grace through faith. This looks like confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9-13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not simply repeating a prayer, but it is coming to God and giving Him your life. Declaring Him as your Lord. And when you do this, He saves you. That's why He came. Joseph was commanded to name the child Jesus because He would save His people from their sin. J.C. Ryle says it this way, He saves them from the guilt of sin. By, the, by washing them in His own atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying Spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin when He takes them out of this world to rest with Him. He'll save them from all the consequences of sin when He shall give them a glorious body at the last day. Ephesians 2 tells us, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why we love the name of Jesus. Because it declares what he has done for us. That's why I love that old hymn by Layla Long. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. It says there have been names that I've loved to hear. But never has there been a name so dear to this heart of mine. As the name divine. The precious, precious name of Jesus. There is no name in earth or heaven above that we should give such honor and such love as the blessed name. Let us all acclaim that wondrous, glorious name of Jesus. And come day I shall see Him face to face and thank and praise Him for His wondrous grace which He gave to me when He made me free. The blessed Son of God called Jesus. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And He's just the same as His lovely name. That's the reason why I love Him so. Oh, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. So name Him Jesus because it is a redemptive birth. But it's a supernatural birth for a third reason. It's a supernatural birth because it was a divine birth. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. He's quoting, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What was going on there in Isaiah 7 when this prophecy was given? Well, the scene is the reign of King Ahaz in Judah, the son of the great Uzziah. Ahaz was a wicked king. He filled Israel with idols. He reinstated the worship of the false god Molech. He, he actually burned his own son as a sacrifice to that god. Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, they decided to remove Ahaz and replace him with a king who would do their bidding. And in the face of this threat of being removed and Israel seeing their king, Judah seeing their king replaced and this threat to the royal line of David, Ahaz, instead of turning to God for help, sought the help of Tiglath-Pileser, the, the evil king of the Assyrians. In fact, Ahaz even plundered the temple and sent to Tiglath-Pileser the gold and silver that he found there. Isaiah came to Ahaz. He reported to God uh, that God would deliver the people from the two enemy kings. Well, Ahaz refused to listen to Isaiah. So I don't even believe in this God. Well, Isaiah responded with remarkable prophecy. That prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Well, how did the prediction of a virgin birth of a Messiah fit into that? Well, Isaiah was telling the wicked king that no one would destroy the people of God or the royal line of David. And when the prophet said, the Lord will give you a sign, he used the plural you. He wasn't just speaking to Ahaz, he was speaking to the entire nation. Telling them that God would not allow these two kings or anyone else to destroy them in the line of David. You see, Jesus was not simply just another child born in first century Israel. This was a special birth. This was the uniting of the divine and the mortal. This was the combining of the Godhead with his creation. This was an incarnate birth. That's why we had Larry read his text this morning, John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John goes on to say, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God became his creation. Think about that for a moment. God spoke everything into existence. He specially created man. And the man decided, I want to be you instead. I don't want to be creation anymore. I want to be God, as if that could happen. And if you're God, or if I'm God, and praise God we're not, we just start over. So you know what? Enough of this. You guys are crazy. You're all uncreated. But God didn't do that. Instead, God became his creation. He took on flesh so that he could save us. Calvin said it this way, for out of Christ we are alienated from him, but through Christ we are not only received into his favor, but made one 
with Him. You see, because Jesus is God, we can be confident in Him. His promises are true because God is true. He is faithful because God is faithful. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us because as God, He's eternal. He's not simply another man. Jesus was not simply a good teacher or a great prophet or a good guy. Jesus is God. God in the flesh. Joseph was to take Mary as his wife because this birth was a virgin birth, a redemptive birth, and a divine birth. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Not vague feelings of love and self-sacrifice. We celebrate redemption itself. The reality that Jesus took on human flesh through his birth. Because of that, he was able to suffer and die for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. He rose victorious from the grave over sin and death, and he offers life to us. And so we celebrate Christmas because of Easter. That's why we celebrate. Because the feet of that little baby would crush the head of the serpent, would overcome sin and death. However, this does require a response from us. We see an example of this response through Joseph's superior faith. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In these two verses, we see Joseph's faith revealed in two ways. First, it was revealed in his obedience. This was not an easy thing to do. Joseph sacrificed his reputation. He committed to raise a child that was not his own. But this text reveals that he did all that God commanded him. We might say, well, Joseph was some kind of super Christian Some kind of great man. But as Wayne demonstrated last week, Joseph was just a plain, normal, ordinary, blue-collar guy like us. But he had extraordinary faith. He was willing to obey. You know, salvation in Christ is not a call to a life of ease. It's a call to hardship and suffering. We saw in Mark 8 that Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're called to be different from culture. To stand for things the world hates. Making Christ our Lord means that we follow him regardless of the cost. So the question is, will you be like Joseph? Will you obey the commands of God even when they are hard? Submitting to and honoring wicked and ignorant government. Loving your neighbor more than yourself. Holding to a biblical sexual ethic. Standing for the unborn. Most importantly, sharing the good news of salvation in Christ. Here's the thing. If you do any of those, you will not be popular in this world. You'll be seen as a narrow-minded bigot. We need to be like Joseph. 
We need to be willing to sacrifice our reputation. To have people look at us and tell us we're wrong, but stand for truth regardless. Will you be like Joseph and obey? But secondly, we see Joseph's faith is revealed by his trust. It says he called his name Jesus. Joseph understood exactly why he was to name this child Jesus. And fulfilling that act, calling his name Jesus, was an act of faith in the redemption of God. This child would save God's people from their sin. This child would be the Messiah. This child would mend the rift between God and man. This child was the promised seed of Genesis 3. And as Joseph named him Jesus, Joseph understood this child is going to save me. We too must act in trust. We must place complete faith and trust in Christ. Only then can we enter into a relationship with God. Only then can we be forgiven of sins. So the question this morning is, have you done that? Have you accepted Christ's sacrifice on your behalf? Have you declared him as your Lord? Have you given him your life? Next to Easter, Christmas is the most important holiday in the year. Not because of family time or the gifts or Santa. Rather, it is important because we celebrate our salvation. This is the time of year when the world seems more open to the message of the gospel. These conversations can begin with the simple question. What do you think Christmas is about? Why do you think we, why, why do you celebrate Christmas? Our world's in shambles. It's a mess. It desperately needs the gospel. Take the opportunity this Christmas season to contemplate on the gift of salvation and share that message with others. What would happen if we were as passionate about sharing the gospel as we are about sharing our views on all that's taking place? our views on our leaders, our views on prevention measures, our views on the economy? What if we were as passionate about sharing the gospel as we are about that? It's a sad statement that most of us are more passionate about the things that are temporal than the things that are eternal. So let me conclude with three challenges to you. So what? We've covered a lot in today's message. So what? Three things. Number one, Pause to consider the true meaning of Christmas. God with us. That's an amazing statement. It's not about the lights, although they're beautiful to see. It's not about the presents, although they're wonderful to give. It's about Christ, God with us. Spend some time to meditate on that. Number two, surrender your life to the Savior King through faith in his sacrificial death. Christmas is about Easter. It's about Good Friday and about Easter. So it's a good time to take a long look at our life, to recommit ourselves and to surrender our lives again and afresh to Christ through faith, perhaps for the first time for salvation, perhaps as ongoing sanctification to become more like Him. That means then, three, that you'll believe in and submit to Christ, your Savior King, in every part of your life. I want to emphasize the every part part.
part of that. We all have areas that we don't really like to surrender to our Savior King. We think that He hasn't, doesn't have control over this or that, or we need to respond, or we need to put things on our social media, or we need to tell our neighbors, or we just need to get it out. Because we're failing to believe and submit in Him in every part of our life. Obey Him even when it's hard. Are you obeying Him in your finances? Are you obeying Him in your thought life? Are you obeying Him in your workplace? Are you obeying Him in your meditation on Scripture? Are you obeying Him in your speech? In every part, submit to your Savior King. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for the opportunity to look at your Word. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us without hope, but you have given us a Savior. I don't know why you did it. I'm so thankful. So help us to live in light of that reality. Lord, if there's any in this room who have not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. They would come to a saving knowledge of you and trust you. Those of us who have done this, that we would walk as worthy disciples. We would not get sidetracked by all that is going on in this world, but that we would long for the day when redemption will come, redemption of our bodies. You'll make a new heaven and a new earth and all things will be right. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.